Um, and so I'm going to be continuing our series on Philippians. Um, and as I said last time, I do love Philippians. Um, once again, here's the lovely little graphic for you to see. Isn't that good? It's lovely. Right. So Philippians, Paul in prison, writing to the church in Philippi that he founded. Now, someone, um, I think it was Christine actually, wrote to me during the week about the fact that Paul being in prison potentially meant he had the time to write these wonderful letters. And I think it's really interesting when you stop and think about Paul in prison and then read the book, the letter to the Philippians, and in particular, chapter 2, which the very wonderful Esther will be speaking on next week. Um, and it, I know I won't keep going on about how brilliant it's going to be because that will really wind Esther up. Um, so <laughs> chapter 2 is profound theology about God, about Jesus, about Jesus emptying himself, just these weighty thoughts. And effectively, there's something about being locked up that means you haven't got time to think about lots of stuff. You've got time to think about stuff that matters. And I think there's something about Paul having time to think and pray and ponder his relationship with God and what Jesus had done that gave rise to some of this great theology that we see in Philippians, some of these beautiful phrases. But today what we're going to do is we're going to have a little look at this prayer that he utters for the Philippians and then a little bit of a challenge that he wants to throw down. Because one of the things about Philippians is shot through it is this sense that for Paul his time is running out, that ultimately he is coming to the end of his life, as we will see. And he's beginning to ponder, what does he want for the churches that he's planted? What's his longing for them in his absence as they continue to be witnesses in the world? So we read last week the beginning of the prayer. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make requests for all of you with joy. And we looked at why he was so joyful about their partnership in the gospel. But what does he pray? It's really interesting. Paul's prayers sometimes give us an insight into what Paul considers important for the Christian life. And so here he says this beautiful prayer for the Philippians. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. So for Paul, when he's writing to them, he's thinking, right, what do I want for you between now and the day that Christ returns? And how you fill your time between now and the day Christ returns, or he calls us home. And the question is, what are we doing with the time that we have between now and when Christ returns? Are we basically just killing time? Is coming to faith receiving an airline ticket to the most wonderful holiday ever? And in effect, you've come to faith, you've got the ticket in your back pocket, and you are just waiting for the plane to arrive and take you to this fantastic holiday. And in the meantime, all you've got is to kill some time. Do you see your life as an opportunity to just kill some time until you get to be with Jesus in glory? Or do you think your life has purpose, meaning? Do you think there's stuff for us to be getting on with whilst we're waiting to be with Jesus? So Paul's prayer breaks down into his longing for what they should be doing in that meantime. And in typical Paul fashion, the way he writes is incredibly frustrating. 
Because he'll start one idea, then something else will occur to him, so he'll then talk about that in parenthesis, then he'll come back to the original point, and then that'll remind him of something else, and off he'll go in that direction. And so it can be quite tricky sometimes to follow the logic of his argument. So his prayer basically breaks down into this kind of pattern. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more, so that you will be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. But the way that that works is this parenthesis. He says, with knowledge and all discernment, so you approve what's excellent. So he's saying, in order for your love to abound more and more, you're going to need some wisdom, some discernment. And as you live a life full of love with wisdom and discernment, you will be pure and blameless on the day that Christ returns. And then he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So the point is, when we read a phrase like that your love would abound more and more, the danger is we think it's, we need to feel love for other people. We think we need to be full of just love for others, love for our neighbors, love for our family, love for the people in church. And then you meet the people in church and you realize it's really hard to love some of the people in church. I'm pointing that at myself. I know a lot of you struggle with me. But the point is, what Paul is saying here is not about feelings. As you know, love is a doing word. Scripture is clear. John, writing, the, the, in some ways, John, the apostle of love, writes, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So there's a link between truth, action, and love. Because ultimately, if we want to genuinely love someone, we need to know, we need to have the wisdom to know how to do it. We can think we know, but ultimately we need insight from God to know how best to love people. Because the reality is, without true love, you get paternalism. You get there, there. Because ultimately, paternalism at best is mildly annoying, at worst is highly damaging. So all the writers talking about the way the church engages in the world in love, time and again point out how the church trips itself up into paternalism and a whole range of different paternalisms, thinking we know what the person needs, thinking we know what's best for that situation. But Paul here is saying, guys, if you genuinely want to love people in action, You need wisdom from God to know what is the right action. What does love actually look like for them? Not what you think, not what you've seen on telly, not what you've heard other churches doing. What actually do we need to do? So one of the ways to think about this prayer is actually what Paul's logic does is it leads him to a conclusion. But actually, if you read the prayer backwards the other way, sometimes it makes a bit more sense. So... If you want to praise and glorify God, that's where he ends. If our goal is to praise and glorify God, we need Jesus to produce righteous character in our lives. So our love may abound more and more and we can love others wisely with the right actions. And then we can be changed so we are more like Christ, which is where pure and blameless comes in. So you see, if you invert it, And you say, what's the goal? It's to glorify God. How do I achieve the goal? Well, I need God to do something in me and through me. Because we need to make sure we start in the right place. Because if you start 
with pure and blameless, if in your life you set out to live a life that is pure and blameless, you will end up with angry and judgmental. That's the natural consequence of us, in our own right, thinking we can do pure and thinking we can do blameless. Because in order to do pure and blameless, what we tend to do is think, what I need is a list of things that are good and a list of things that are bad. I will do the good stuff. I will avoid the bad stuff. I will fail to avoid the bad stuff. I will feel bad about avoiding the bad stuff. I will then feel guilty. I will then feel angry about the fact that there are all these stupid rules that I'm supposed to be keeping. That's what happens when you start with pure and blameless. The other issue with pure and blameless is effectively you use a set of rules to define who's in and who's out. There are those of us who are living according to this set of rules and then there's everybody else. It's what we call a bounded set. Bounded sets effectively say, Here are the people who are on the inside, the good guys. Then everybody else, by definition, is a bad guy, and they are on the outside. Unfortunately, this is a picture of much of church history. (laughs) A lot of the time, the church in the world has taken this approach. It has said, what we need to do is circle the wagons. The world is bad, the church is good. So what we need to do is we need to do life differently. So we need to have a code of behavior. But ultimately, what often happens is that code of behavior is decided at the moment you circle the wagons. If you circle the wagons in 1950, what you find in 2020 is you're still living by the rules that you set in 1970. And this is one of the problems the church that I know well in Eastern Europe struggled with. During communism, when Ceausescu, for instance, took over in Romania, the church circled the wagons. They said, evil is out there, we're the good guys, we need to live according to these rules. In 2022, they are still looking like they are from 1950. They're all wearing dark suits, carrying big Bibles, they have a list of rules as long as your arm that you have to abide by. And that's the problem. When we go for bounded versus centered sets, we set a set of rules at a moment in time, and that becomes a new God to us. And we begin to worship those rules. We begin to live by those rules. But what if there's a different way? Paul's saying, if you don't start, if you want to get pure and blameless, you need to start somewhere else. Where you need to start is with Jesus. He says, you need to be seeking Jesus and being filled. In his letter to the Philippians, he's clear. It is Jesus that produces a righteous character in us. Not us trying to abide by a set of rules that we've invented. Ultimately, we need to start with Jesus and being filled with him and his spirit. Because if we start there, we begin to experience the love of God in our lives. We begin to see God transforming us so that we can love others. And we begin to get knowledge, discernment, insight, wisdom into how to live and do love well in the world around us. And as we do that, we will find That when God looks on us, he sees Christ in us, he sees Christ through us, and he begins to see pure and blameless in our lives. And that, my friends, is what we call a centered set. It's about moving closer to Jesus rather than defining who's in and out. The problem with centered sets is they are very messy. But the beauty of it is everybody in this room can run their own race. 
They can be thinking about what God is saying to them. They can have God working on them. They can have God transforming them in the order of priorities that he has, not the priorities of some set of rules set many years ago. So the goal for us as followers of Jesus is to pursue Jesus, to be seeking him, seeking to be filled with him, seeking to know him better. And as we saw last week, what we discover is it's not a one-way street, that actually Jesus is reaching from heaven down into our lives and drawing us towards himself. It's a two-way process, that as we seek him, we find he's already sought us. As we reach for him, we realize he's already reached for us. As we ask him to transform us, we discover that he is transforming us. I was reflecting on my own life, and ultimately our goal is to move closer to Jesus throughout our life. To be drawn closer to Jesus, but at the same time to pursue him. So the question is, at the, the base question, is do we actually want to change? The offer is there from Jesus to everyone in this room today. I can transform you to be more like me. Do you want that? Because that does require something from us. It requires us first letting go of control. And saying, Lord, what do you want to do in my life? And then actively pursuing those things. Actively doing those things that help us grow to be more like him. And in that partnership, we find ourselves transformed to be more like Jesus. In the 21st century, character is not something you often hear talked about. In fact, we try not to think about it. Especially in our politics. No, I didn't say that. Let's not get into that. That's a whole other can of worms. But the point is, throughout history, mankind was fascinated by the question of how do you have good character? The Greeks were fascinated by it. The Romans were fascinated by it. To an extent, the Victorians were fascinated by it. But in the 21st century, I feel like we've lost that sense of, in our own lives, being ambitious to grow our character. To become the kind of people God wants us to be. To have a character that is Christ-like. How ambitious are we? Are we just getting by? Are we just killing time? Or do we see our lives as an opportunity to grow our character? To become more like Jesus every day. To the praise and glory of God. So Paul, writing to the Philippians about this gap between now and Christ returning, then flips and turns to think about his own situation. Here he is in prison, conscious that time is running out. What does he think about his life and what he's going to do before Christ returns? Well, ultimately for Paul, it's a little bit different. Because he knows he is in a Roman prison and the Romans have a level of barbarity that is hard for the 21st century to fully comprehend and life is incredibly cheap. Paul knows at the whim of his jailer, at the whim of the local governor, at the whim at any moment he could be carted outside and executed. That actually his life may not reach that point of Christ returning, it may be cut short by execution. So he knows his days are numbered, either by the fact that he's getting older and he's coming to the end of his ministry, or by the fact that the Romans might just choose to speed things along. So what does he say? How does he respond to that? Well, in verse 20, he writes this. 
For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through me. So here's Paul, torn with his time running out for whatever reason, torn between two desires, to go and be with Christ or to continue to live. And this is a question that people often ask me. Dave, if heaven's so flipping brilliant, why are we stuck here doing this stuff? Wouldn't it be better if we just went to be with Jesus? Does anybody know what this is? It's the James Bond ejector seat. It's effectively under the gear lever in the Aston Martin DB5 in Goldfinger. Very good. Many of us think, actually, would we be better off? Would I be better off, given all that's going on at the moment, if I could just press eject and go to heaven and be with Jesus? Because that would be better. But Paul isn't saying that. When he says, I'm torn between two desires, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, whether Jesus calls me home or I'm executed, effectively, whether I have any choice or not, I am at peace with either outcome. That I know to be with Jesus is great, but I know to be here means I can do some stuff for him. And so Paul has a clear understanding as he writes to the church in Corinth. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. When we come to faith, when we say, Jesus, will you come into my life as Lord and Savior? In that moment, you bow the knee to a glorious king. And you say, ultimately, my life is now no longer mine. It is yours. And what happens is up to you, not to me. So our lives are not our own. Unfortunately, we don't get to press eject and immediately get to heaven because God has work for us to do. As Paul says, between now and Christ returning or calling us home, I live so I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So God has given us a purpose and a mission in this world. And yes, at times, as we'll see, it can be really hideous and tough and difficult. But Paul's saying we don't get to press eject. That our lives are not our own. It is not for us to say what God can do in us and through us as we struggle. And he goes on to say, that life isn't necessarily always easy. He says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come to see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. 
We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past and you know that I am still in the midst of it. So what does he say? He says that life will be a struggle. There will be struggles. There may be trouble ahead. Well, I guarantee there will be. So what does he say? How do we respond to that? Well, he uses an analogy from the military. He says, you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. The idea of standing firm is from a shield wall. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the film 300. It's not for everyone. I am a fan. King Leonidas and the 300 soldiers guarding the pass of Thermopylae against the entire Persian army. Did it happen? Didn't it happen? It's a cool story. But the reality is, shield walls are really strange. Because when we think of a shield wall, we often think the most important thing is the line of guys at the front. But if you look closely, what you'll see is a line of guys behind the guys in front. So in a Roman unit, there would be three rows. Now, you might think the guys behind, their job is just to keep strong, be ready, and then take their opportunity to step into the front line and fight. They're effectively the reserves. They're on the subs bench until they're called forwards. No. The role of the guys behind is to use their shields to push against the guy in front. And then the third row are pushing forward as well. So the guys in the front cannot step backwards. They can't retreat. There's a line behind them holding them firm. And there's a brilliant moment in the film 300 where the Persian army throw themselves at the shield wall and you see the entire shield wall begin to skid backwards. Nobody steps, but literally their feet are being skidding along the ground. And once the skidding stops, they begin to step forward as an entire piece, an entire unit, step by step by step, they move forward again. And Paul's analogy here about standing firm is this idea that you might be on the front line at the moment. You might be having an absolute shocker. Life is tough. The idea is that there should be people who love Jesus behind you and alongside you to help you stand firm in the midst of that struggle. And that is hard and difficult. But one thing I would say in this church is we do try to look out for each other. We do try to support each other. But we're not always good at putting our hand up and saying, actually, do you know what? I'm having a shocker. Can you pray for me? Can you help me? And so the idea here, Paul is saying, he wants to know that this church in Philippi are standing firm as one. And the question for us today in this messed up world that we're living in is as community church, are we standing firm as one, alongside each other and behind each other to enable us to stand firm in the struggle. Because unbelievably, I think the incredible thing about that is the way we do that in the struggle is part of the good news of Jesus. Because as the world sees how we are able to stand firm in the midst of some terrible stuff, they see what it means to be united in Christ. They see what it means to love one another. They see what it means to be part of the body, to be part of a family. And that is such a witness to the world. And one of the things I wondered, I'd like to encourage you to think about is sometimes I've heard people tell stories about, I went through this really tough time and I'm so grateful too. And then they'll name a couple of people in church and say they've been really good friends to me. And that's great. They are really good friends to you. But I'm conscious. I had a friend come and visit us recently. 
from Romania. And the way they talk about church is very different. So they would say, the reason I've been through some really tough times, but you know what? My brothers and sisters in church have stood with me. They would mention the role that their brothers and sisters in Jesus, the church, play in their life. And if we want our ability to stand in the struggle to be a witness to the world, we need maybe to use slightly different language about it and see it as an opportunity to say, do you know what a difference church makes in my life through my brothers and sisters, my friends from church standing with me in this tough time? Because if all we ever do is refer to our friends, then the world doesn't know the difference church can make in helping us stand in the midst of the struggle. So, the challenge from Paul in this whole book of Philippians in many ways is what are you doing in the gap between the now and Christ returning or calling us home? And he longs to see us engage in fruitful work. Longs to see us standing together in the struggle. But I really felt this challenge as I was preparing this that actually for myself and for many others, in effect, what we're doing is killing time. My addiction to Clash Royale is a real problem. It takes up a lot of my time. What's it for you? What areas of your life where actually, do you know what? I'm just wasting time. I'm just killing time. I'm not actually doing anything with it. I'm not actually investing in the kingdom of God. I'm not actually investing in my relationships. Am I just killing time? So I want to pray for us. And in particular, I want to pray for you this morning if you feel like you are in the midst of the struggle. That you're finding things really hard. And I want to pray for Jesus to come alongside you. But I also would love for a couple of people from church to come alongside you. So we're going to take-